From New York, this is Democracy Now! Family detention is inherently inhumane, it's unacceptable, and has no place in a just society. The evidence is crystal clear. Detention under any condition, under any circumstance, harms people. Almost 400 immigrant and human rights groups are urging the Biden administration not to reinstate migrant family detention. We'll speak with two of the organizers. Then, as we continue to mark the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we look at a new documentary about the father of Julian Assange and his fight to free his son. Julian was in prison for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq, Afghanistan, and beyond. I urge the Department of Justice to drop the charges. The maximum jail sentence of 175 years. Because he published the truth. How does it feel to be the father of such a controversial figure, somebody who's not known around the world? We'll speak to Julian Assange's father and brother. Then we look at the costs of the Iraq war, from civilian casualties to soaring Pentagon budgets. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Wall Street's largest banks have moved to prop up the ailing San Francisco-based First Republic Bank after the sudden collapse of regional bank signature and SVB last week sparked fears of a financial meltdown. Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo will each make $5 billion in uninsured deposits into First Republic, while seven other Wall Street firms will deposit a further $10 billion. The Federal Reserve reports Wall Street firms have received about $300 billion in emergency lending over the past week, roughly half what the Fed loaned banks during the 2008 financial crisis. On Capitol Hill, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sought to reassure the Senate Finance Committee over the stability of U.S. financial markets. I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. Yellen defended the Biden administration's decision to allow all depositors at SVB and Signature to recover their assets after the bank's collapse using money from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That's despite the fact that over 93 percent of assets at SVB and Signature were not insured by the FDIC. Under questioning from senators, Yellen admitted smaller banks that fail might not get the same treatment. The United Nations says there's encouraging momentum in the effort to end the war in Yemen after more than eight years of conflict. U.S. and Saudi officials said Iran has agreed to stop arming Houthis in Yemen as part of the recent China broker deal to restore diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Here in the United States, Senators Chris Murphy and Mike Lee introduced a bipartisan resolution this week that would require the U.S. to report on Saudi human rights abuses with the goal of ending U.S. arms sales to the kingdom. The humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen has left over 17 million people in need of assistance. The Polish president, Andrzej Duda, said Thursday his government will ship four Soviet-era MiG fighter jets to Ukraine, becoming the first nation since Russia's invasion to meet Ukraine's request to deliver warplanes. Following that announcement, Slovakia's government said it would transfer 13 MiG fighters to Ukraine. Finland, the Netherlands and other NATO members are considering similar transfers. In Geneva, the U.N.-mandated Independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine said Thursday 
Russia's committed wide-ranging war crimes in Ukraine, including possible crimes against humanity. Eric Moos of the chair of the commission. The commission has concluded that the Russian authorities have committed numerous violations of international humanitarian law and international human rights law, in addition to a wide range of war crimes, including the war crime of excessive incidental death, injury or damage, willful killings, torture, inhuman treatment, unlawful confinement, rape, as well as unlawful transfer and deportation. China's foreign minister said Thursday he called his Russian counterpart to urge a diplomatic solution to the Ukraine war, warning the conflict could spiral out of control. The warning came as China announced President Xi Jinping will travel to Moscow early next week to hold talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Australia has agreed to purchase 220 Tomahawk cruise missiles from the United States at a cost of nearly $1 billion. The U.S. State Department approved the sale Thursday, just days after President Biden formally announced plans to sell nuclear-powered submarines to Australia in a bid to counter China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. The Biden administration is threatening to ban TikTok if its Chinese owners refuse to sell their stake in the U.S. version of the hugely popular video sharing app. TikTok has been the target of increasing scrutiny by some lawmakers who say it's a threat to national security and that its owner, Beijing-based ByteDance, could use Americans' personal data. On Thursday, the U.K. became the latest country to announce TikTok would be banned on government devices following similar bans by the U.S., Canada and the European Union. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed four Palestinians, including a teenager, in a raid on the city of Jenin on Thursday. The deaths bring the number of Palestinians killed by Israeli forces this year alone to at least 83. The Palestinian Authority in Israel are scheduled to hold security talks in Egypt over the weekend, which will include officials from Egypt, Jordan and the United States. Fresh protests erupted across France Thursday after President Emmanuel Macron bypassed Parliament and invoked executive powers to push through a highly contested law raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Macron took the drastic step after it appeared he might not have the necessary support in the National Assembly. Lawmakers booed and sang the national anthem while holding up protest signs and signaled Macron could soon face a no-confidence vote by opposition parties. Massive protests and prolonged strikes have rocked France over the past two months as union leaders vowed to keep up the disruptions. This is a teacher speaking from Thursday's protests in Paris. It's proof that the president's party is a minority in parliament, but he is also a minority in public opinion. The responsibility is on President Macron. After he refused to have dialogue with the unions, he decided to pass this law by force. This law, which is unfair and unpopular, will result in people working more to get less. 
In the United Kingdom, unions representing medical workers, including nurses and paramedics, have agreed to a tentative deal on pay raises that would recover ground lost to inflation. Union leaders hailed the deal as a historic victory, capping months of rolling strikes by thousands of workers at the National Health Service. About 100,000 civil servants and others, including junior doctors at NHS, remain in a long-running dispute over pay, pension and job security. Meanwhile, the U.K. government says it's agreed to intensive talks on teacher pay and classroom sizes, with an estimated 200,000 teachers in England and Wales who hit picket lines this week for a three-day strike action. Teachers were among th tens of thousands of people who marched to the streets of London Wednesday. I can't sit back and watch education decimated. Um, it's not just about teacher pay. We're talking about funding for schools. Our children deserve so much better than this. They are our future. In Greece, riot police deployed tear gas and sound grenades against protesters Thursday as workers held a general strike amidst ongoing anger over last month's rail disaster that killed 57 people. The strike grounded flights, halted public transport, kept ferries dark, canceled classes and left public hospitals running with emergency staff. Rail workers say government neglect and privatization led to the decay of the train system. Back in the United States and East Palestine, Ohio, newly released data shows soil around the site of February's Norfolk Southern train derailment contains levels of dioxin hundreds of times higher than what's considered safe. That's according to The Guardian, which had the data reviewed by former EPA officials and other chemical experts who said dioxins found in East Palestine were extremely concerning, even if they're below the federal cleanup threshold. The findings also contradicted assertions by the EPA, which told Congress last week, dioxin levels were very low. In 2010, when the EPA found dioxin poses cancer risks, the agency tried to have those limits lowered, but the Obama administration kept the higher threshold in place. In related news, two trains operated by BNSF derailed in Arizona and Washington state Thursday. In Washington, cleanup teams were deployed after some 5,000 gallons of fuel leaked into the Skonomish tribal reservation. North Dakota's Supreme Court ruled Thursday the state's abortion ban should remain on hold while a lawsuit over its constitutionality is resolved. North Dakota's anti-abortion trigger law was supposed to take effect once Roe v. Wade was overturned, but a lower court temporarily blocked it last summer, arguing abortion rights are protected by the state constitution. The legislation makes it a felony to perform an abortion, with limited exceptions in cases of rape, incest or medical emergency. And the Los Angeles Times announced Thursday it will no longer use the word internment to describe the mass imprisonment of over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry during World War II. It will instead use terms like incarceration, imprisonment or detention. It's the latest step taken by the paper to rectify the harm it caused during the war when it called for the incarceration of Japanese and Japanese-Americans. The L.A. Times issued a formal editorial apology six years ago. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, nearly 400 human rights groups are urging President Biden not to reinstate the controversial practice of migrant family detention by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. This comes amidst an intensified crackdown on asylum seekers as his administration prepares to phase out the contested Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy used to expel over 2 million migrants without due process at the southern border.
On Thursday, a woman named Beatriz, who was held in the first ICE family detention center in Artesia, New Mexico, in 2014, spoke at a protest in Washington, D.C. The detention causes irreparable trauma, especially when you have children who are growing and playing in a place where no one should be. Los solicitantes de asilo venimos a este país luchando por nuestras vidas. People who are asking for asylum come to this country fighting for our lives. Es un derecho humano al que todos tenemos derecho de acceder. It is a human right that we all have the right to access. Puedo quedarme aquí por horas y contar tantas injusticias que vi durante estuve en la detención. I could be here for hours and I could share so many of the injustices that I saw when I was in detention. Y todavía en todo este proceso de tantos años. And still in this process of so many years. El sistema está diseñado para traumatizar, para violentar y no para salvar vidas. The, the system is created to traumatize us and to violate our um, human rights and not to save lives. Family detention was first used by ICE under the Obama administration, continued by President Trump even after doctors con contracted by Homeland Security's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties found the practice subjected thousands of families to abuse and trauma. In 2017, Democracy Now! spoke to DHS whistleblower Dr. Scott Allen, who described conditions at the Artesia Family Detention Center. Probably the most poignant examples that we documented is we looked at uh, weights. I pulled the charts of every child there, and I looked at their weights across the course of their stay, and was uh, really surprised to see that a significant number of children, who probably entered the facility to some extent malnourished, given their perilous journeys, um, were not gaining weight in the facility, which is what you'd expect if it were a healthy and nurturing facility, but they were, in fact, losing weight. Uh, which is a really disturbing marker that we did not expect. Now, that was 2019. This comes as the Los Angeles Times announced on Thursday it'll no longer use the term internment to describe the mass incarceration of tens of thousands of Japanese Americans during World War II. Instead, they'll use the words incarceration, imprisonment and detention. Eighty years ago, the Los Angeles Times actually campaigned to detain Japanese-Americans during the war. It published a formal editorial apology in 2017. For more, we're joined in New York by two guests who are among those saying never again to family detention. Mike Ishii is the co-founder of Tsuru for Solidarity. His mother was incarcerated at the so-called Camp Harmony uh, holding center in Washington state and then in Camp Minidoka in Idaho during World War II. Also with us, Silky Shah, executive director of the Tension Watch Network. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Silky, let's begin with you. When President Biden first came into office, he pledged to end family detention and to pursue just, compassionate and humane immigration policies, drawing a very sharp contrast between what he planned to do as president and what President Trump did. Yet what's happening right now? Hi, Amy. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, I mean, he's doing the complete opposite. The truth is that Biden on the campaign trail, the Democrats under Trump were politically supportive of immigration. That was how they, like, 
put themselves out there. They very much said, we don't believe in family detention. We don't believe in family separation. And the complete opposite has happened. In fact, mo many of the Trump-era policies stayed in place for a very long time. And Title 42, as you mentioned, continues to stay in place. It'll—I think this sort of push to say, now we're going to consider reinstating family detention is largely because Title 42 is going to end in May. They're, they're finally going to end it. And they're saying, well, they're in every way, they don't believe, they don't want to support migrants at the border. They don't want to support people seeking asylum. And so they're reinstating this policy, believing that it's going to deter, deter families and also politically show that they're anti-immigration. They believe that that's what they, that they, what they need to put out there. And so in every way, the Biden administration has faltered and is going against all the promises that they made on the campaign trail. So can you talk, Silky, about the organizing that's going on right now? Nearly 400 human rights and immigrant rights groups have come together? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there has been a long effort to end family detention going back to 2006, when the Bush administration started detaining families at the Hutto Family Detention Center. Obama brought that back um, or ended that practice at Hutto, but then brought it back in 2014. There's constantly been so many groups working to end family det detention, both at the local level and at the federal level, or you know, humanitarian organizations, grassroots organizing. Um, we recently had a really big win at the Burks Family Detention Center, which has been in use for 20 years. Um, and they finally ended the practice of family detention there, but they kept the detention center open for women. But just earlier this year, they stopped detaining people there altogether. And it shows the power of organizing, the power of us actually getting to this place where we're finally seeing the end to detention at certain facilities and actually a reduction of detention in the first time in 40 years in this country. So for the Biden administration to now go back and say, well, we're going to go ahead and detain families again is really a blow. And But the reality is, so many groups, like you said, four, nearly 400 groups came out and said they don't want this. Nobody wants this. And in fact, so many people, even in the administration, don't want this within ICE. Nobody wants to do family detention. And a lot of it is just them playing politics and saying, we're going to do this because they're worried about people seeking asylum. They don't want to offer support to people seeking asylum. And this is their way of saying, OK, we're just going to treat families horribly and tell people not to come. Our other guest today is Mike Ishii, um, who was there in 2019 when five Japanese-American elders and survivors of U.S. concentration camps protested Trump administration plans to detain migrant children at the Fort Sill Army Post in Oklahoma, which was a prison camp for 700 Japanese-American men in 1942. Democracy Now! was there, too, when the protest was disrupted by military police. All of our elders who are incarceration survivors have stated publicly that they are willing to be arrested in defense of the children who are going to be yeah, brought here. Satsuki, can you please describe what's happening now? Uh, they're wanting us to—they're uh, wanting to remove us. Uh, we've been removed too many times. If, uh, if that's what it comes to— people understand? We will stay here and— uh, what don't you people understand? We understand the whole history of this country, and we aren't going to let it happen again. 
Mike Ishii, you were there with others from Tsuru for Solidarity, including Dr. Satsuki Ina. Um, now you're protesting again against family detention. Talk about the background, your own family detained during World War II, and why you're so concerned about this Biden shift. Thank you, Amy. It's, it's nice to be back here again. Um, you know, the Japanese-American community is really still healing the multi-generational trauma from that forced removal, separation of families, and detention. And what we recognize is that in the United States, there's an intersectional history here of always targeting communities of color and immigrant communities with this kind of state violence. So it's been important for Japanese-Americans who were basically silenced um, by that uh, experience during war World War II to step forward and assert our voice um, and stand in solidarity with people who are being targeted currently because we know the harms that come to people. Um, that's why we showed up at Fort Sill. That's why in the years since then that we have formed a national organization. We're fighting along with Detention Watch and many other organizations on the ground to stop the expansion of and the normalization of uh, incarceration of unaccompanied migrant children. And now, unfortunately, it looks like they're going to bring back family detention. Mike Isha, I'm wondering your response to the Los Angeles Times Thursday announcing that um, they will no longer use the word internment. You know, people refer to the Japanese-American internment camps of World War II, uh, instead uh, talking about incarceration, imprisonment and detention. What did that take mm -hmm. to, for the L.A. Times to get there? Well, that, you know, there's been, a, I would say, a campaign for, you know, over 50 years um, from my community to challenge the euphemisms of the United States government when it targets communities of color with racist policies. So during World War II, they called them internment camps. Um, that's actually factually incorrect, but it was used as cover to not say that they were imprisoning people. For instance, they called um, immigrants aliens, and they called citizens non-aliens. Um, and so we, we are also challenging that in this moment. Um, you can call it a processing center or an intake site, um, but these are detention sites. Detention, no matter what you want to call it under another name, is detention, and it's wrong. Last month, Silky Shah, the Biden administration proposed a new policy that could block tens of thousands of people from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The rule would force migrants to first seek protection in Mexico or another country they pass through on their way here. They'd be able to ask for asylum in the U.S. only if those previous claims in another country are denied and accompanied children would be exempt. Your response to this policy? Um, it's, I mean, it's devastating to see how far this administration has gone to the right on asylum. Uh, We—I mean, the truth is, for many, many years, both the Republicans and the Democrats, a bipartisan strategy to push for deterrence at any cost, which is why Obama brought back family detention in 2014. And that actually opened up space for family separation to happen. Him doing that, everything that's happened for—since the Clinton administration especially, has been— prevention through deterrence, 
consequences at the border that both include turning people away, not giving them the right to asylum, also incarcerating people and prosecuting them for just seeking asylum for coming to the border. Um, and I think in so many ways what we're seeing with this administration is that Actually, you would hope that after the Trump administration, we'd see that this is not how we want to be as a country. We actually want to support people, protect people, care for people. Instead, this administration is going back on all of that and just saying, no, we're going to go, we're going to continue to do the same thing and, in fact, keep a lot of these Trump policies. And I think the uh, asylum rule that's coming up, this essentially ban that's coming up, is a response to this administration having zero vision on immigration and on specifically a lot of people needing safety and seeking safety right now. And instead, because Title 42, they waited to end Title 42, it be took on a life of its own and they kept it in place for so long that now they're scrambling to find something else to put in place when Title 42 ends. Um, in 2016, the United Nations Human Rights Office warned that detention of children can be devastating for a child and is not a legitimate response under international human rights law. Uh, we're going to end here with Mike Ishii. Um, all of the groups that are involved right now, do you have a sense or a number of whistleblowers, to say the least, speaking out during the Trump era? Are there whistleblowers from within the government? And do you have a sense that the you can stop the Biden shift? Well, Amy, we're in a very troubling moment right now. This is an administration that campaigned on protecting children, um, calling out the harms of the Trump administration, and yet they're actually replicating those policies. What we've seen at Fort Bliss, the largest of these detention sites for unaccompanied children, is that four whistleblowers have come forward. Uh, alleging sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, children under suicide alerts, uh, rotten food, lack of medical attention, and certainly terrible mental health issues going on for these children. This is the state of um, child detention in the United States. And the Young Center issued a report in 2022 uh, noting that children who exhibit signs of trauma inside of detention sites are then um, written up, and these uh, write-ups are used as justification to punish them. And so a lot of them are being stepped up into secure facilities. These are juvenile detention—not uh, juvenile detention. These are juvenile prisons. Um, so children, immigrant children taken from detention sites into juvenile prisons, this is not going in the right direction. Mike Ishii, I want to thank you for being with us. Suru for Solidarity, his mother incarcerated at the so-called Camp Harmony Holding Center in Washington State, then in Camp Minidoka in Idaho during World War II, and Silky Shaw, executive director of the Detention Watch Network. Coming up, as we continue to mark the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we look at a new documentary about Julian Assange's father, his fight to free his son imprisoned for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq, Afghanistan, and beyond. Back in 30 seconds.
Juegos y Miedos, Games and Fears, by Gabby Moreno. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue our coverage of the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq by looking at the imprisonment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who's been jailed for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq, Afghanistan, and beyond. Julian has spent nearly four years locked up in the U.K.'s notorious Belmarsh Prison, often called Britain's Guantanamo. He's been held there as the U.S. government seeks his extradition to face espionage and other charges. If extradited and convicted in the U.S., Julian faces 175 years in a maximum security prison. In 2010, WikiLeaks gained international attention after publishing a trove of classified documents leaked by former U.S. Army soldier Chelsea Manning. Included were numerous accounts of war crimes in Iraq. One video released by WikiLeaks showed a U.S. helicopter gunship in Baghdad slaughtering a dozen civilians, including two Reuters staff. Reuters journalist, the up-and-coming uh, photographer, videographer, 22-year-old Namir Noor Eldin, and his driver, Saeed Shema, father of four. WikiLeaks titled the video, Collateral Murder. This is an excerpt. Let me know when you gather. Watch you. Light them all up. Two traffic, two Come on, fire. Julian Assange appeared on Democracy Now! in April 2010, a day after WikiLeaks published the collateral murder video. When we first got it, um, we were told that it was important and that it showed the killing of journalists, but we didn't have any other context. And uh, we spent quite some months um, after breaking the decryption uh, looking closely into this. And, and the more we looked, the more disturbing it became. Uh, this is a, a sequence which has uh, a lot of detail and I think in some ways covers most of the bad aspects of the aerial war uh, in Iraq and what we must be able to infer is going on in Afghanistan. These are not um, bad apples. This is standard practice. You can hear it from the tones of the voices of the pilots that this is in fact another day at the office. Uh, these pilots have evidently and gunners have evidently become so corrupted, um, morally corrupted uh, by the war that they are looking for excuses to kill. So that's Julian Assange sitting in a Washington, D.C. studio right after he released the what they called collateral murder video. I later interviewed Julian in 2014 about WikiLeaks releasing the Iraq war logs. At the time, he was living inside the Ecuadorian embassy where he'd sought political asylum. We sat together there. Iraq war logs, which were published in October 2010, which in some ways has been one of our best uh, analytical works. Um, uh, we work together with um, not just other media organizations, but a number of statistical organizations to work out what the kill count was for Iraq, and combining with other, other figures. And we ended up with more than uh, 100,000 civilian casualties. In fact, 15,000 new, completely undocumented um, civilian kills and documenting 
uh, U.S. involvement uh, and, uh, and approval of Iraqi torture um, centres within the within the police and uh, many um, killings of civilians at checkpoints and and some polit- political issues and so on, and that. Uh, produced a number of inquiries and has fed into cases that have been taken by um, Iraqis that have has now uh, ended up uh, with an ICC filing, an International Criminal Court filing against uh, uh, the British military. So that was one of several interviews I did with Julian Assange inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London when we traveled to interview him here there. That was in 2014. Well, in a moment, we'll be joined by Julian's father, John Shipton, and his brother, Gabriel Shipton. They're here in the U.S. for the opening of a new documentary about John Shipton's struggle to free his son. It's titled Ithaca. This is the film's trailer. Julian Assange is the hero of our time. He was the darling of the left. All of a sudden, he's a puppet of Russia. My name is John Shifton. I'm Julian Assange's father. WikiLeaks found that Julian Assange has been arrested. One of the most notorious and controversial figures in custody. Assange will remain behind bars until that extradition hearing, which has been set down for the end of February. The Department of Justice to drop the charges. The maximum jail sentence of 175 years. Because he published the truth. How does it feel to be the father of such a controversial figure, somebody who's not known around the world? Was that him on the phone before? Yeah. Yeah. What are you talking about on a, on a kind of regular basis? If Julian is extradited to the United States to face these charges, he will be the first, but not the last. What are your worst fears? Then it just collapses under the strain. It looks as though what journalists do for a living is seen to be a criminal act. Uh, I should to keep it up, man. Thank you. I wish I had your energy. I really why do you think there's not a great public love and support? This is really a truly a good question. What's at stake? If he goes down, so will journalism. That was the trailer for the new film Ithaca, produced by Julian Assange's brother, the filmmaker Gabriel Shipton, who joins us in Washington, D.C., along with their father, John Shipton. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Gabriel, let's begin with you. Talk about just the name of this film, Ithaca. Well, it's named after a a poem by C.P. Caberfee, and uh, it's a poem that uh, you know, John would listen to uh, while we are, you know, traveling around the world advocating uh, for Julian. Um, and it's sort of a really grounding, inspiring poem that talks about, uh, talks about the journey and not the destination. And really, it's, we chose the title because it's really about, you know, when you're fighting for a cause bigger than yourself or uh, for an unachievable or seemingly unachievable goal, uh, you know, you have to live every day or, you know, just take, put one foot in front of the other. And that's what really Ithaca is about. It's about uh, the friends you make along the way, the lessons you learn, uh, the things you see um, that 
keep you going every day in this fight to free Julian Assange. And Gabriel, I mean, you were a filmmaker already, and then this hits your family. Uh, can you give us the latest what this hitting your family is, what has happened to Julian and the latest state of affairs? He's been now at the Bill Marsh prison for four years. That's right. Uh, so it's coming April 11th will be the four years in, in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. He has uh, one final appeal application to appeal uh, in with the High Court in the UK. He actually, all the papers and, and all, all the documents were submitted uh, five months ago, uh, and the High Court is still deliberating on whether to hear this appeal or not. So this is just further evidence that it's this thin veil, this thin legal veil uh, that is hanging in front of uh, Julian's persecution. He remains in a maximum security prison. He is not convicted uh, of any crime. He's held there solely at the request of the US DOJ. Uh, the prison has 800 inmates, 20% of whom are convicted murderers. Julian sells a, shares a cell block with these people. Uh, he spends most of his days isolated in his cell. Uh, it really is a dire situation for Julian. And I really just have to uh, compel people that, uh, you know, we have to act to free him now. I want to turn to a clip from Ithaca, where our guest John Shipton, Julian's dad, talks about visiting him at the Belmarsh prison for the first time. Can we talk about the day Julian asked you to help can you talk me through that? I don't really remember. What I remember is that he got arrested and so I came here and went and saw him in the... went and saw Julian in the jail. Anyway, he was in a very bad way. Okay. Yeah, just, just tell me, how was uh, Julian's lunch? Uh, he's lost uh, about 10 kilos weight. And uh, he's uh, psychologically under a lot of stress and pressure. The visiting hours are very, very precious. Sorry, I'm a bit upset. Yes, my first yes. Were you able to give him a hug? Yes, yes, that, yeah, yeah. How was, was that? Moving? That was pretty moving, as you would expect. Pretty tough for him, you know. I guess that'll do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I said, I'll, I'll be back. You know, I won't stop coming until uh, you can come home. So that's John Shipton just outside of Belmarsh after seeing Julian inside for the first time. John Shipton joining us from Washington, D.C., um, just before he heads up here to New York with Gabriel um, for the film's showings in various theaters around the U.S. We'll be there tonight. Um, I'll be doing the Q&A with John and Gabriel. Uh, John Talk about that moment, seeing your son, um, what this means to you, and having a film about your um, decision to travel the world to garner support for Julian Assange. Oh, good morning, Penny. Uh, um, well, you know, it's a bit heartrending when I went in and saw Julian, who's a bit, you know, wobbly, he just— uh, 
was still in what the prisoners call the hell wing, which the prison governor calls the health wing. Um, it's a, a pod within the prison where um, the prison isolates those it considers uh, ill. Um, Julian was uh, considered uh, so depressed that he had to be watched 24 hours a day um, to prevent uh, any self-harm. Uh, and he'd lost a lot of weight. Um, usually, you know, Julian uh, is a very strong-minded man. And he never asks me for anything, but he, at that stage, just asked, uh, could, I, could I come and give a hand? Uh, for, could I come and work at, um, you know, getting him free from those circumstances? And that was about three and a half years ago. Um, yeah, so that's the circumstances. Actually, it'll be four years in April. So since then, we've built a worldwide movement. Every single parliament in the Western theatre has a cross-party Assange group. The United Nations have involved themselves. The Council of Europe have involved themselves. And every single major uh, civic organisation in the United States, ACLU, Asylum, Human Rights Watch, 27 of them in all, have involved themselves in the five great newspaper outlets that partnered with Julian in the release of the Iraq war files, the cables and the Afghanistan war files. They have written a letter uh, to Merrick Garland uh, asking that the, uh, the charges be dropped. Of course, the publishers have written this letter. As Julian is a publisher, all publishers uh, realise that this... Uh, prosecution has brought a chill to the capacity to analyse uh, policy and a capacity to print that analysis so, so thereby to inform the public. Newspapers that have called for his release, um, New York Times, The Guardian, El País, Der Spiegel. But I'd like to go back to a 2010 Meet the Press interview with then-Vice President Joe Biden. ABC host at the time, David Gregory, questioned Biden about Assange. Should the United States do something to stop Mr. Assange? We're looking at that right now. The Justice Department is taking a look at that, and uh, um, I'm not going to comment on, uh, on that process. Do you think he is a criminal? If he conspired to get these classified documents with a member of the U.S. military. That's fundamentally different than if somebody drops on your lap. Here, David, you're a press person. Here is uh, classified material. Mr. McConnell says he's a high-tech terrorist. Others say this is akin to the Pentagon Papers. Where do you come from? I would argue that it's closer to being a high-tech terrorist. A high-tech terrorist, Gabriel Shifton. Um, that's now President Biden. He said that as vice president on NBC, meet the press. That seems to be a comment across the political spectrum, from Biden uh, to the former director of the CIA, Pompeo, who could be running for president. 
Your response and what sense you're getting from inside the Biden administration right now on this extradition request? Well, this was, you know, an extradition uh, prosecution that was pushed by, as you say, Mike, Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration. Uh, and now under the Biden administration, uh, it, it continues on. So, you know, the Biden administration um, is owning this uh, this prosecution uh, at the moment, uh, and they're continuing and continuing pushing forward with it. Uh, the National Security DOJ, uh, you know, is fighting uh, Julian's application to appeal, and so we see that they're pushing forward with this uh, prosecution. Uh, what we are seeing, though, and what John uh, was talking about, is this worldwide movement uh, for freedom of expression that has grown up around the fight to free Julian. And that is now coming uh, into the Congress uh, in the United States. Uh, Rashida, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has a Dear Colleagues letter uh, that is, uh, that's coming from the Progressive Caucus. Uh, we know there are four other Congress people uh, signed on from the Progressive Caucus. So we're really seeing some uh, movement uh, in, in Congress from the Democratic side, uh, as well as Republicans like Thomas Massey, who have been uh, longtime uh, supporters of Julian. So uh, we are hopeful uh, and uh, that this sort of pressure uh, will help uh, the Justice Department, help Merrick Garland really have a look at this uh, Trump-era prosecution uh, that criminalises uh, what journalists should be doing every day, publishing without fear or favour. Uh, they need to have another look at it and uh, really come to the conclusion that the New York Times has, that the ACLU has, that this is a, a threat to press freedom and the First Amendment. And finally, John Shipton, you're Julian's dad. Do you, does he in Belmarsh hold out hope? Sorry, I, I missed the Do question. Do you hold out hope? For oh yes, his freedom. Uh, yes, uh, uh, most certainly. Um, uh, I use the word faith. You know, uh, every every second, every minute, devoted to continuing. It benefits, first of all, Julian, and secondly, uh, um, our family. Thirdly, all of those people who uh, believe in the great. Uh, artifact of the United States Constitution, the First Amendment, whereby we can freely read, freely comment, and as a consequence of that, build an understanding of uh, government policy or uh, cultural or social movements. It's just absolutely vital. And uh, it was first discovered or first announced by Goodall, who was the uh, uh, first announced by Goodall as a global problem. Uh, Goodall was the uh, attorney who uh, fought uh, on behalf of the New York Times back in the Pentagon Papers day. Also, I would add that uh, uh, the support of, of Daniel Ellsberg has been you know, stalwart over the last 14 years. And the last time we was here, he invited us into his house. And it's with uh, 
considerable sadness that Gabriel and I received a, a note from Daniel the other day that he would be uh, leaving us soon. Meaning he's announced that he has pancreatic cancer and doctors have said he has months to live. John Shipton, I want to thank you so much for being with us, father of Julian Assange. I also want to thank Gabriel, Gabriel Shipton, Julian's brother, who is the producer of the new documentary Ithaca, which was written and directed by Ben Lawrence. Ithaca will be screening in New York tonight at the New Plaza Cinema on 67th Street in the Upper West Side, where I'll be doing a Q&A with John and Gabriel after the film. On Saturday, it'll be screening at the Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, Long Island, on Sunday at the Picture House in Bronxville, and on Monday at the Alamo Draft House in New York City. You can go to democracynow.org for details. Coming up, we continue to look at the costs of the Iraq War from civilian casualties to soaring Pentagon budgets. Stay with us. Oh, my mama, she gave me these feathered breaths. Oh, my mama, she told me, use your voice, my little bird. She said, sing, 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 melodies. And she sang, 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 melodies. Oh, my mama, she did give me fancy feet all. Dancing on, and I'll tap, tap, tap my toes into those creaking floorboards. Oh, my mama, by Alayla Diane. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to mark the 20th anniversary of the U.S. led invasion and occupation of Iraq, we look now at the many costs of the war, from civilian casualties to soaring Pentagon budgets, with Nita Crawford, co director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. She's author of a new report titled Blood and Treasure United States Budgetary Costs and Human Costs costs of 20 years of war in Iraq and Syria, 2003 to 2023. She's also professor of international relations at Oxford University and author of the new book, The Pentagon, Climate Change and War, charting the rise and fall of U.S. military emissions. Today, she's joining us from Montreal, Canada. Nita, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can start off by laying out what you found as you looked at 20 years of U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, and I say going right through today because thousands of U.S. soldiers are still in Iraq. That's right. So, in 2002, the United States had a uh, discussion about the costs um, of a possible war in Iraq and the possibility of civilians and others being harmed. And the estimates were then quite low, between 50 
billion and 200 billion or 300 billion would be the total cost of war. There'd be few civilian casualties, few military casualties, and that the war would be contained and over very quickly. And what has happened over the last 20 years is that thousands of U.S. service members were killed, uh, about 5,000 U.S. service members and um, many contractors. And then in addition, uh, hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed, 7,000 by the U.S. in the first month of the war, but now hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed by all parties over the 20 years. And that's in part because Iraq descended into civil war shortly after the U.S. invasion. And then in addition, uh, many millions of people were displaced. Millions of people are still displaced internally and also as refugees in the region. Now, in Syria, there, uh, the US inter- when the U.S. intervened in 2014 into an ongoing civ- Syrian civil war, many more people were displaced, many more people were uh, injured by by bombs. And then what we also see is that even in the places where the fighting has stopped, civilians and uh, other people like uh, uh, healthcare workers have been injured by unexploded ordnance, which has been left in the wake of the war. So the, the story continues. It's not over. It wasn't quick. It wasn't easy. And it certainly wasn't cost free. So I want to ask you uh, about the uh, costs of war right now um, as we look at uh, your report, which includes a table that shows more than 2,000 civilians were killed by U.S. coalition airstrikes in the first month of the Iraq war alone. Uh, Again, the U.S. invaded Iraq 20 years ago Sunday, our time Sunday, it was uh, the 20th, March 20th in Iraq, March 19th in the United States. That's right. The U.S. began airstrikes um, actually before the war began in a small number, but in the first month of the war, About 7,000 civilians were killed by all means by the U.S. coalition, more than 2,000 of them killed by airstrikes. And this was part of what was called then the shock and awe strategy. The idea was that if the United States bombarded uh, Iraq, hit vital infrastructure and leaders, that the Iraqi military would collapse, um, that they would surrender. And of course, that didn't happen. But... uh, There were many civilians killed inadvertently um, by air uh, strikes that went astray. And this is always the case in war that civilians are harmed unintentionally. And then, uh, of course, the airstrikes continued. But the first war was in particular quite intense. The first month of the war was in particular quite intense. So 2,500 U.S. soldiers are still in Iraq. Um, If you can talk more about um, what the U.S. uh, is even requesting now. I mean, we're talking about 
the U.S. returning to significant military operations in Iraq and Syria in late 2014 and fighting that was undertaken, they said, to remove Islamic State from the territory. The war continues with a nearly $400 million budget request from the Biden administration this month to counter ISIS, they say. That's right. The United States believes that if they leave, ISIS or some other militants will come back. And uh, right now, the idea is um, to maintain a presence there um, on the border and also in Syria to make sure that ISIS cannot re recover and take more territory. Now, of course, in uh, the period after the invasion, there were no militants, uh, terrorists in Iraq. And that's what uh, we, we knew then, that uh, the, the reason for the war in 2003 was to supposedly get rid of weapons of mass destruction, which were not there and never found, of course, because uh, they had already been dismantled. But ISIS and other militants flocked to Iraq in part to push back the United States coalition and to try to free Iraq from what they saw as a foreign occupation. And so the um, birth of ISIS is in part due to the U.S. invasion in 2003. And of course, ISIS uh, spread in the region and took over large swaths of territory, which then had to be retaken. And um, it was a, a very intense fight. So the United States remains there to do that at, uh, as you say, a requested nearly $400 million for next year. Professor Crawford, why did you include Syria uh, in the costs of war with Iraq? Well, quite simply, because when ISIS took this uh, territory, they didn't take it just in Syria, they took it in Iraq. The reason why President Obama said the United States needed to be in this fight was because uh, the democracy that the United States hoped to set up and support in Iraq, the government there was at risk. Large parts of the territory near Syria were taken. So the United States began bombardment of ISIS, and uh, so did other countries, and tried to take that territory back. Of course, they destroyed much of what had been rebuilt following the 2003 invasion. And um, this is why it's included, because it's of a piece. The entire uh, war effort is premised on fighting—post-2014 is premised on fighting ISIS, which was in both countries. And that's—it's called Operation Inherent Resolve, and that's the, the point. It is about Syria and Iraq. And finally, uh, your new book, The Pentagon Climate Change and War, charting the rise and fall of U.S. military emissions related directly to Iraq. Uh, no, well, the, the rise and fall of U.S. military emissions, The Pentagon Climate Change and War, is about U.S. Uh, military emissions from the 19th century to the present. But the uh, part of the emissions from the Iraq war, I calculate to be about 100 million metric tons from 2003 to the present. Right. And we have 15 seconds, but the connection between climate change and uh, a war for oil. Well, um, it takes fuel to fight 
and the fight uh, for fuel has been a large part of United States military doctrine and U.S. foreign policy since the 1980s. The idea is to make sure that the fuel is available, and in part, it's so that it's available for warfare. Professor Crawford, we're going to do part two and post online at democracynow.org. Uh, Nita Crawford, professor of international relations at Oxford University, co-director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University, will link to your new report, Blood and Treasure. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.